All right, this is the second go for me this morning. I've already preached this sermon once. So somebody said, you ought to have it really good. <laughs> and it's a great text in the book of Philippians. So turn to the little letter to Philippi, the church at Philippi. Just four chapters, and we're in chapter 3. Today, talking about being citizens of heaven. Verse 17 is where I'm reading. By the way, you have the devotional guide in your worship guide. And it's designed for you to use starting tomorrow through Friday as you have breakfast, lunch, or dinner at your table. You can pull that devotional guide out and rehearse these scriptures that I am speaking about this morning. Verse 17 says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. The apostle has given us this inspiring text that we often quote, and we commented on it last week. He's already said, this is my style, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I reach forward toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So that's his orientation. He's already told us this is his personal testimony. What he does is he forgets the past and he pushes forward toward the goal. And he expects that we're going to do the same. That's why he's calling the church to look to him as a model. At one point, at one point he says, I wish everybody was like me, except for these chains, by the way. He's got the chains on, doesn't want everybody to have that condition, but he'd like everybody to be like him, saved, following Jesus, pressing toward the mark. Forgetting what's behind, reaching forward to what is ahead. Models are important. Today is my son's 34th birthday. He's my youngest child, Joshua. He's a youth pastor at First Baptist Church Lubbock. I called him this morning to say hello and wish him a happy birthday. When he was a preschooler, we were driving along. I looked over there and realized he was trying to snap his fingers. Say, what are you doing? Snapping my fingers. Said, when I grow up, I'm going to snap my fingers just like you. In a little bit, I see he's trying to whistle. 
I'd been snapping my fingers and whistling the tune. He said, when I grow up, I'm going to whistle just like you. They pick a model. He can snap and whistle far better than me, all right? He's great at it. There are a lot of things in which he has excelled me. And the models are how we learn. We watch people. My eight-month-old grandson, Graham, has not yet learned to crawl, so I'm trying to teach him how to crawl. And uh, I grab his little legs and move them, you know, and he can get up on his knees, he can get up on his toes, he can scoot around, roll over. He gets all over the place, but he's not crawling yet. So a couple days ago, I got down on my hands and knees, and I crawled in circles around him and said, See, look at this. He's still not crawling, all right? But he's going to learn. It's not for having lacked seeing somebody do it. If, if you watch him now, when you, when you talk to Graham, he's starting to watch your lips. And that's how babies and toddlers uh, learn to speak. When you talk to them, sometimes you'll see they're, they're watching your lips. When they finally get down the sounds and they understand how to form them, they'll look at your eyes. And if they forget or they hear something new, they'll look back to your lips because they are learning how to talk by watching you do it, by concentrating on how you're forming the sounds with your lips. Models are important. Maybe Graham has just not developed enough in his motor skills to crawl yet. He's going to get there, maybe this week, maybe next. He's just got to develop a little bit more. There is a developmental piece to how we do things. And Paul mentions that in this passage. After he says, I'm forgetting what is behind, I'm pressing forward to what is ahead, he says, this is my orientation, this is how I live my life, I want you to do this, if you're mature, well, you follow my example, and he mentions that if you are mature, there's a condition about maturity. And it may be that not everybody is ready yet to see the apostle's example and jump right in. But we ought to want to be. Developmentally, we don't want to crawl all our life. We want to walk. We don't want to just walk. We want to run. We want to get faster and stronger and better in our skills. And so we watch the pros as they swing their baseball bats. And we watch Breeze as he throws his passes. And we watch the golfers as they swing their clubs because we want to do the best we can with these models that are so great at the task. But here's what the apostle is encouraging us to do. He says, keep this model in mind. And he points to himself. Follow my example. He has no embarrassment saying. Follow my example, he says. And live like people who put Christ first. Keep this model in mind. It's important who you pick as a model, young people. And the rich and the famous and the beautiful are very attractive to us and sometimes they're distracting to us and we look at them in the magazines and on the screen and we think, I want to be like that, but do you really? 
want to be like that. When the apostle talks about a model, he's talking not only about a moment in time or a picture in a magazine, he's talking about a lifestyle. It's not just how they perform when they're in the spotlight, doing their thing, when they're excelling on the court. It's their off-court behavior. It's how they live their life day by day. That matters too. You don't want to pick a model and become like them and discover you don't like who you are. And the apostle says, follow me because he is following Christ. When times get tough and it's hard to put one foot in front of the other and you feel discouragement creeping over your soul and you wonder if you can keep going, remember the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. When he speaks to the saints and he gives them the roll call of faith, he encourages them to persevere. In chapter 12, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, the pioneer and, protect and perfecter, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, look at what the writer does here. He knows the Christians are struggling. Some of them are sitting down, getting exhausted, wondering if it's really worth the effort to live the Christian life, to follow the model, to pick up your life and follow Jesus, to get in motion. And he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, but not in any random place. Fix your eyes on Jesus as he dies. You can watch Jesus as he walks in the water. You can watch him as he heals the lepers. You can read about him feeding the 5,000, and all these are inspiring pictures. But the central picture in the New Testament, the key point, is the death of Jesus upon the cross. And so the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, watch him as he dies. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look to him, lest you grow weary and lose heart. Paul only calls attention to himself because he's doing everything he can to follow Jesus. And Jesus is the one we follow. He is the model. We are Jesus people, right? We're Jesus people. Now, keep this model in mind and keep this caution in mind, all right? Because there is a caution in this passage, and you saw it when the apostle said, I'm saying it again, and even with tears, he says, some are enemies of the cross of Christ. It's hard to imagine that some are enemies of the cross of Christ, and he gives this caution. He wants them to look at the teaching they're hearing and the people they're following and make sure that they are following Christ. I showed you that snake from the farm about three weeks ago. You remember seeing that snake, that long four-foot snake? You know what I did before I ever approached that snake to say hi, and take his picture and have him pose for me? I looked to see if he had a rattler. Because these snakes with rattles you don't want to get too close to. 
And there's a few others you don't want to get too close. So I looked at his markings, and I looked at his color, and I looked at his tail to make sure it wasn't dangerous. And the apostle's saying, there are some folks out there that are dangerous, and you can identify the danger. Here's the caution. It's about the cross of Christ. Some people are enemies of the cross of Christ. And these people, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They mind earthly things. They're enemies of the cross. If you step out that door, you will see a sea of crosses. They stretch for a quarter mile. I didn't notice how many there were till the floodwaters of Katrina filled up the cemetery. When I landed here by helicopter 11 days after the storm, I had my camera around my neck and I took this picture. I could see the crosses reflected in the water. Every cross was out there twice. And I looked down the rows and realized there are crosses everywhere. But what do they mean? What does the cross mean? It was an instrument of execution in the days of Paul and Jesus. It was their electric chair in the Roman Empire. That's how they killed people. And the cross of Christ is the one upon which Jesus died. And he's saying, caution, warning, keep this in mind. Some people are enemies of the cross of Christ. I thought, Lord, what's an enemy of the cross of Christ? Well, there are two things, I think, that make you an enemy of the cross. Number one, if you believe that your good works will save you and make you acceptable to God, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You may be thinking, did he really say that? I want you to hear that just as plain and clear as you've ever heard me say anything. Maybe you're one of those who say, look, if you're sincere and you do your best, God will accept you. Then what's that cross about? What's the cross about if you can craft your own salvation and be acceptable to God and get to heaven without it? What's it about? It's an accident, isn't it? It's a footnote. It's an unnecessary and miserable event that happened 2,000 years ago if you can get to heaven on your own. He has already mentioned in this, this is his second warning in this book of Philippians. And it is not a single solitary mention in the teachings of the New Testament. It runs through and through, beginning to end. It's why when Mark wrote his story about Jesus, he took half of the book just talking about what happened at the end. Somebody said, that's really just a tract about the death of Jesus. What's so important about the death of Jesus? Why is the cross so central in the history of the church of Jesus Christ? It's because we believe we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. 
We are sinners. We have failed. We are morally flawed. We are accountable. And we serve a God who is absolutely perfect. You say, that sounds awful stern to me. I know and I hope, let me rather say, I hope in your heart that you see Jesus as full of grace. Do you not? When you look at Jesus in the New Testament, doesn't he startle you with his love and his grace? Isn't he beautiful in every way? He's compelling. He's winsome. The most startling figure in human history is Jesus. It's because he doesn't beat up the woman who is caught in adultery. It's because he loves the unlovely and touches the leper and hugs the children. It's, that's Jesus. It's Jesus who said, the old law said, do not kill. But I say to you, even if you have hatred in your heart, you have broken the command. It was Jesus who said, the law says, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, even if you have lust in your heart, you have broken the command. What Jesus does is he puts the law that is written on the stone that Moses brought down from the mount under a magnifying glass and he multiplies it a hundred times. He puts it in the heart and he says, God cares about the condition of your heart. And if you look in your heart and you're honest, you know you've got sin and trouble and heartache and failure and loss, and pride, and greed, and selfishness, and gossip, and anger, and resentment, and all the things we're not supposed to have, they, they get stuck inside. We are people who believe God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on that cross and pay the penalty for our sin. We believe that the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist introduced him, who knew no sin, who never sinned, when he died on that cross, he took in his arms and he scooped up all the sin and ugliness in the human race and he held it to himself as he sunk into the abyss. We believe that he who knew no sin became sin. Why? In order that we might become the righteousness of of God in Christ Jesus. The cross is the center because we are saved by grace, not by good behavior. And we need to make that as plain in our hearts as we can make it. If I ask you the question, why do you think you're going to be in heaven? Why would God open the gates of heaven to you? And you respond and said, well, I've done my best. Are you telling me you want God to open those books? Take a look at your life? Play a tape not only of the things you said and the things you did, but the things you thought and what was going on in your heart? Do you really want that? No. We need a Savior, and we have a Savior. His name is Jesus. And we are friends of the cross when we keep it in the center and know that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus and that alone.
I think that's the first thing because Paul mentions it so mention so much that makes you an enemy of the cross is if you negate the cross forget the cross and set it aside and create your own path then Jesus death upon the cross is not the central event of human history anymore for you it's your good work and what you do we are saved by faith in Christ alone second thing that makes you an enemy of the cross this is about behavior there were some folks who said in Philippi you know once you have the grace of God it doesn't matter how you live that's why in this little list after it says they are enemies of the cross it says their God is their stomach their desires their appetites that's what their God is in other words if it feels good do it whatever it is you want to do do it and they were teaching that to the people in the church oh now that God saved you your soul is in heaven so it doesn't matter what you do with your body and Paul is saying those two are enemies of the cross God didn't just save us when Jesus died on the cross he gave us an example for living when Jesus died on the cross it's not just about the moment of salvation it's about the process of living your life that's why the writer of Hebrews points to the cross for encouragement on how to live today and tomorrow okay you look to Jesus you look to Jesus where do I see him you watch him die when times get tough you watch him die you think about how he gave his all he poured out his life he died on the cross for me he stuck in there he was determined he exhibited the perseverance he loved from the cross even when he was hurting he said father forgive them for they know not what to do he took care of his beloved disciple he took care of his mother this is Jesus on the cross nails hand the life blood sap seeping out of him and he is taking care of other people as he dies can you do this can you care about others even when you are in pain can you help somebody even when you need help can you give away your life in love for God and others even when times are tough for you or does the trouble of your life bring it all down and collapse your life into yourself the cross kind of living is what Paul is calling them to let's follow Jesus not just in the glory and the victory and the power let's follow him as we pour out our lives on behalf of those around us and the God who loves us that's why Jesus said before he ever died on the cross you want to follow me deny yourself take up your cross daily and follow me <laughs> before he ever died on the cross he was telling his disciples you got a cross in your future and if you want to be mine and live for me in this planet and make a real difference with your life then pick it up every day and it represents for me the life that is lived for Christ like Paul said earlier for me to live is Christ the life that is lived for Christ he is the Savior he is the Lord 
and we eagerly wait for him. Keep this Savior in mind. We are citizens of heaven, Paul says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Keep this Savior in mind. I thought I was a pretty good writer when I came to the Times-Picayune. You know, I'd actually won several contests writing essays. And they asked me to write up my first news story. I was sitting in that newsroom, and I wrote up my first news story. Man, I worked on it hard. I thought it was beautiful. I gave it proudly to the copy desk. In an hour, they sent it back. And it had red marks all over it. They'd whacked out about half of what I wrote. They had arrows pointing up and down. I never saw such a mess. I said, what is this? The editor looked at me and he says, you buried the lead. You know what that means? You put the lead in the first paragraph. And I had it in 14. (laughs) The lead is the most important thing in the story. Don't bury the lead. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't bury the lead in your life. What's the lead? The lead is Jesus and him crucified. Look at 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Don't bury the lead. It came up this week. How can I start a conversation with people? How can I share my faith? One of the easiest ways to share your faith is to make sure you put the lead first. And when somebody says to you, you are such a fine school teacher, you are such a fine student, you are a model student, I wish I had 30 more like you. Or you're such a great employee. Be honest with them. What a mess I'd be without the Jesus who died for me. You should have seen me before I knew him. And he changed my life. Always deflect the glory from yourself to the God who saved you. Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that those men may see your good works and really pat you on the back. No, it's not what he said, is it? Correction. Rewind. That they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So one of the great opportunities you have is as you live the life of faith, pouring out yourself in love on behalf of others, people are likely to say to you, that's an unusual way to handle conflict. I'm surprised that you didn't strike out in anger. I mean, what's going on with you? Those are great opportunities to exalt the Savior and share the transforming power of the gospel with people who observe you every day. It's a great opportunity. It's a wonderful moment. We are waiting for the Savior. 
We are eagerly anticipating his arrival. For some of us, that means we're going to get a new body. I guess all of us, but some of us are anticipating it more than others. They say you get a new body about every seven years. Scientists say that every cell in your body gets replaced every seven years. This last body I got is a mess. All right? I'm saying... uh, I think Paul's feeling that. You know, Paul's in prison. He's got these aches and pains. He can't see so well. At one point he says, you know, we're just groaning and travailing in pain. He says, I'm looking forward to this glorified body, this heavenly body God's going to give because in this one we, we suffer. He says, Jesus is going to transform my body into one like his glorious body. That's great news. She was 38 years old. Alicia was. She was right here 20 hours ago laying in a coffin ready to be taken to the cemetery. Her favorite song was Amazing Grace. And they sang all five verses. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I told the folks at the funeral, those words were written by John Newton, who was captain of a slave ship. He hauled people in chains from their homeland to their slave land and he said he heard the voices of 20,000 souls crying out at night and he was astonished that God would extend his salvation to a wretch like him when he experienced God's wonderful grace through the death of Christ upon the cross for every one of his sins This song broke out of his heart. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus is the lead in every believer's life. He deserves our daily walk, our highest praise. Let's bow together. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. You've been counting on other things. You thought you would get to heaven other ways. And hearing the good news that Jesus died on the cross for you this morning, you are ready to come and say, I want Christ in my life. I want to trust him alone for my salvation. If that's happening in you, I encourage you to come in just a moment. Maybe you've trusted Christ, you've not been baptized, this would be the time to come and say, I'm ready to follow Christ in believer's baptism or church membership. Lord, we pray today that you would have your way in us. Help us say yes to the call of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.